0: Today's show is brought to you by Hana. For the past few years, I've been taking Hana One, an all-natural, daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. Hana also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit hana.com, that's dot com and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Afromo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Sarah Hendershot. Sarah grew up playing soccer, but soon got into rowing in high school. While studying psychology at Princeton University, she became a two-time All-American and team captain. After graduating, Sarah went on to win two World Championship gold medals and break the world record in the women's fours. At the 2012 Olympics, She and Sarah Zelenka broke the Olympic record in the women's pairs and finished fourth in the final. Since retiring from rowing, Sarah has applied the lessons she learned in elite sport to brand marketing for health and fitness companies, is a performance consultant for the Harvard women's rowing team, and serves on the board of directors for US Rowing.
1: So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your journey, uh, starting, you know, kind of with your origin story, how you got into rowing. You know, was it kind of a family deal or did you just find it somehow and fall in love with it? And then, you know, we'll get into, you know, more specifics later on, but just curious about how you started out.
2: Sure. Um, Rowing was not a family affair. In fact, none of us had heard of rowing before I sort of stumbled upon the boathouse. Um, And so my, my story of finding it really was that I was a lifelong athlete. I tried pretty much everything. Uh, My parents really encouraged me to try things. And so I I think there's really not a sport that I didn't dabble in, at least a little bit as a younger kid, and then started to focus a bit more on soccer and swimming, loved both of those, Um, excelled pretty well at both of those uh, and thought swimming was going to be really my main sport. Um, And so had this kind of endurance and aerobic base from years of doing that and being in the pool really from about age five. Um, And then when it came to getting into high school, we now had to pick really based on each season, right? So I had soccer in the fall, I had swimming in the winter, and I had to decide what it was that I wanted to focus on in the spring, and I wasn't sure what that was going to be. And I started to just kind of hear rumblings that there could be opportunities to earn scholarships to college uh, from this sport called rowing, and that I was tall, and I had this aerobic base, and that could really play to my favor, So that just is what caused me to to wander down to the boathouse. Uh, I went to a public high school in Connecticut, and we were actually one of the few high schools who had a rowing team at that time. Now it's much more prevalent. Um, And I pretty much fell in love with this sport from day one because it was so different than anything else that I had ever played with or experimented with. It was very technical. There were all the aspects of the equipment that you had to take into consideration. And it was also really clear that, whatever amount of work I wanted to put into that sport was really going to display itself in results. uh, And that attracted me to it, you know, from that age of right around 14 as a freshman in high school.
1: Oh, that's great. Um, What would you say, uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, Was there a moment when you realized, and and can you remember this when, you know, you thought, wow, I could be really, really good at this. And I'm going to take this
2: really, really seriously. Yeah, that, that wasn't really until college age you know at the high school age i did dabble a little bit in junior team development type programs um which were all pretty much based on what's your fitness so what's the number that you're able to uh, create on the erg on the rowing machine and what's your coach's recommendation? So I did a little bit of that over the summers in high school and realized that that could take me to the college level and that I was going to be able to actually, you know, maybe be recruited and go and, and row, you know, uh, for four years as part of that experience. Um, but I wasn't all that serious when I first showed up to college. The first couple of years, I think I sort of wanted to have the college experience I wanted to have the social aspect of it all rowing was part of that but it wasn't something I was really dedicated to until our NC2A championship after my sophomore year we finished in 11th um, in in that year I'm pretty sure in my boat and that was devastating because we had won a national championship uh, just a couple years before that and so that was a poor result for our school and I just felt, embarrassed and like I hadn't been giving it my all and like this was really not something I was proud of and I made the commitment in the airport on the way home from that NC2A championship with my coach I told her like this is what I'm going to do over the summer I'm going to come back next year I'm going to break 7 minutes on my 2000 meter erg score like I'm going to take this seriously and she heard me say that and kind of was like all right Like, let's see what you do. Didn't really believe that I was going to commit that much. And I did, I took that whole summer very, very seriously. And that's all of a sudden when I sort of saw this transition and this opportunity, uh, present itself in front of me that I actually could develop the fitness that was required. I could develop, you know, the musculature that was needed. I could really start to see that translated to speed in the water. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's actually a particular moment that was a turning point for me.
1: I love that real quick, uh, you know, before Phil jumps in, um, usually the best athletes that I've been fortunate enough to talk with or work with, um, used, uh, you know, uh, one of those moments where, you know, they kind of had to sift through the ashes, you know, after, after, you know, like 11th place finish that you're talking about, and it made them more driven. And, and so I I love that, that you turned, uh, what happened from, you know, something that could have broke you down into something that you used to build you up and, um, And so what a seminal moment in your career.
2: Yeah, it was. And I'm fortunate that I I had the resources to go and really commit myself. Um, But what I would say too is, with rowing in particular, like the hours that you're going to put in, if you're a part of a team are sort of like the baseline, like you're going to have to show up to those practices. You're going to have to do them. They're not fun. If you're not giving it your full effort, because then you're not fit and you're not fast. Like being in really slow boats, isn't fun. (laughs) So I had already made the decision. Like I was going to stay on the team for four years. And I just didn't want it to be something that I was going through the motions with and that's when I really fell in love with what it meant to go fast and what it meant to push your boundaries and how to break through those barriers that you could set for yourself um, and and really kind of spent the next few years discovering all of that.
0: Oh, I love that. Um, so once you kind of flipped the switch, what was um, the biggest mental challenge from you getting yourself to from this disappointing or crushing 11th place finish into the shape that you needed to help the team contend for a championship again?
2: Consistency was the hardest part uh, because there was just so much that would pull at me. And I know that this pulls at a lot of collegiate athletes to want to go in other directions and to spread their time across multiple activities. And I had to really prioritize what it was that was going to matter to me in order to be able to put in that consistency, consistency. And I think you'll hear that from almost every endurance athlete, right? There's not really a magic formula in most cases. It is a matter of having good, solid training blocks that build on each other over time. And so for that college time, both of those summers were big opportunities to make advancements, right? Where you could actually come back a different athlete than you had left three months prior. And both of those times I had internships that were pretty intensive um, with their hour requirement and the travel that I had to do and the mental load that that required And so I had to force myself to make commitments around the rest of what was going to happen in my life outside of those internships to really show up and to put in the work. And that was hard. Like I would say that that was something like that really became a skill. Like you, I had to develop of okay, when I've committed to something and I've said, I'm going to do it. Like if you take away the other things that can become distractions or that couldn't can become roadblocks, it makes it a lot easier to become, to be consistent. Um, but I I would say that that, you know, that definitely took a mental approach in order, in order to be able to do it and then to bring quality to each of those sessions.
0: Yeah. And I love what you said earlier, you kind of alluded to this a little bit that, OK, there's, you know, even with high school recruits now, there's a benchmark, right, for the kind of school you went to where you have to be able to row a 2K on, on the Concept 2 or an equivalent ERG in between this time and this time, right, to even sniff an opportunity at a scholarship. Um, but obviously there's that ability to create power from a stable base on the rowing machine. Um, but then there's the finer points of the technique. And obviously coming to the sport at age 14, um, there have maybe been other girls on the team that had been you know had an oar put in their hands from the time they were <laughs> kind of like you would hear about say Michaela Sheffrin or someone like that in skiing so what did it take mentally for you to not only get yourself in the kind of shape to put out the the sort of power and you know power endurance really over either a 2k or even a longer um course um college rowing course um and then also to to, to really accelerate and and get to the point that you need to be from from the technique standpoint.
2: Yeah, so you touched on a couple of things there Phil that I think are interesting. The first one being, you know, the the timing of introduction to the sport and mm-hmm. rowing actually is one in particular where it's more common to to pick up the sport at a high school age and not much before it. Mm-hmm. Uh some of that is actually just the limitations of the boat sizes that are available. You you mostly don't grow into those sizes until you're about high school age. Um, But that being said, it's even pretty common for athletes to still pick up rowing in college. Like a third Mm -hmm. of my Olympic team in London were walk-ons in college. So that really goes to show you that there is possibility and potential in this sport uh, to take an athlete somebody who has that athletic ability across any sport Mm -hmm. and turn it into a rowing skill. And I do a little bit of uh, coaching right now for the Harvard women's rowing team. And when we see that I lean into it hard. There's one woman in particular right now that I'm working with who she played basketball in high school. She did a little bit of rowing, um, like, but only for one season. So she wasn't a three season rower where lots of high school athletes are doing that now. And so she's raw, But when you look at what kind of power output she has and the ability she has to take coaching change, it's like, there's a ton of potential there. And so I'm going to absolutely put in more time to develop her skill because I can see that her ceiling is pretty high. I think that was my case as well. I I had some athleticism that I could lean on, um, but it was really about me getting access to coaching that could show me what it was that they wanted me to do. And then I would think about it nonstop, right? Like this is one of, one of those things too, that sounds a little bit silly. And for those people that are just listening to this, they won't be able to see what I'm referring to, but I used to take my hand and practice the or movement to the water on a tabletop, like all day long. Um, and then I would do it in a source of water because I was helping to kind of make this connection between hand and brain even though it wasn't going to be the exact same movement when I would actually put it on the or, but being able to visualize that and feel exactly what I was trying to do from that movement really made a big difference. Um, And I would do things like, put my foot on a step as I was going up a staircase and think about how I was pushing off that step and how that would feel similar to pushing off of the foot plate, right? So it became one of these things where you could make improvements and solidify some of these concepts when you were way outside of the boat and sort of understanding just what that mind to body connection was as an athlete, I think took me a pretty far away.
1: Yeah, I I love that in terms of the visualization piece, um, in terms of moving while you're visualizing. Most of us, you know, think we have to lie down in bed or, you know, be perfectly still. I love the idea when you're doing, you know, you're visualizing yourself performing is actually move your arms or move your legs or move your body a little bit, maybe just, you know, five degrees. And what that will do is activate your motor program in your brain and activate your whole brain. Uh, And then it makes it easier to visualize, see it and feel it. So then when you go out there, you can go out there and trust it. Uh, Totally.
2: Yeah. And a core control was a big one like that too. Right. Because mm. that one probably took me until when I was on the national team to really start to figure out, but there's so much about how you're bracing your core in rowing that, that, creates efficiency when then you apply power through the the blade and through the handle. And so once I realized that that was an important component, I added that into my everyday life, like figuring out how I was going to breathe, brace and pick something up, breathe, brace and walk, right? Like that just became something I became obsessed with and you're doing it every single stroke when you're rowing. So if I could do more reps of it throughout the day, I felt like I was able to actually practice that order of operations uh, when it came time to sit in the boat.
0: Yeah. You did oh, Oh, go ahead, Jim. I was just going to say you, uh,
1: you also described, you know, having just a beautiful obsession with your sport. (laughs) And so it's kind of always either in the front or the back of your mind when you were, when you were, you know, when you were doing your thing and, um, what, what would you say is a common thread amongst those, you know, rowers that, that reach their full, you know, true and full potential versus those that maybe fell short. You know, obviously we've talked about loving the sport. We've talked about uh, you know that drive and that discipline that you had. Uh, what else would you say? I'm sure confidence is right up there as well.
2: Yeah. So I mean, it took me a long time to stop dreaming about rowing every night. Um, I've been retired now for five and a half years, and it it was at least two years <laughs> until I stopped completely dreaming about it. But while I was training, it was constant. Like that's how obsessed I was, and and I. I think I, I did develop this absolute love and passion for the sport over time. But if you had asked me, you know, if you could go to the Olympics in a different sport outside of rowing, would you have been as happy to do that? And the answer is definitely yes. Like I was a competitor to my core and I still am in a different way now, but if, if I could have gone for squash or for badminton or for curling or for track and field didn't matter. Like I wanted to go out and be really great at something. So the fact that I, kind of naturally took off with rowing right away is what led me to more of that deeper obsession. Um, so yes, I think I mentioned this before. I think the ability to put in a lot of consistency is a big key, right? So that requires resilience. I think both mentally and physically, um, the athletes who, I see really struggle with injury, have a hard time taking the sport several cycles and, you know, to the, to to the best place that they possibly could, because they're not able to string together these really long blocks of training. Um, and then I would say the ability to adapt is super key because the training environment that you're in is rarely going to stay the same for, you know, a decade of time and being able to change with teammates and coaches and, water conditions and equipment and all of those things is really, I think, important to be able to have longevity and take things a a far way. Um, but then, yeah, I think the ability to just compete and to almost be willing to sacrifice your entire body (laughs) in the process of it, um, makes a big difference. I had a physiologist once say to me, It doesn't matter if your maximum physiology capacity is 60% of the most talented woman on this team. If you can reach a hundred percent of your capacity and they're not even reaching 60% of theirs, you will beat them. Right? So I leaned into that and really tried to, to capitalize on the fact that I could feel when somebody was having a weak moment in a competitive boat next to me, and I would go jump on that. Um, and I was willing to just go to a deeper, darker place than I think a lot of the people around me were.
0: No, I love that. Um, so plug us back into the story then. So you make this commitment in the airport to really flip the switch and to do everything that it's going to take to, again, put, put your boat, um, and yourself in contention for a national championship. What were the remaining two years, um, like at Princeton and how were they different? Not just in terms of results, but just your process.
2: Well, it was it was a big team shift um, because we had to get the whole team fully back on board in order to have a good result again. So I really tried to lead by example as a junior and I came back fitter than I'd ever been. Uh, We had, you know, we always had an ERG test in the first couple of weeks of showing back up onto campus and I blew my personal best out of the water. And that to me was just, wow, okay, it's the fall. We haven't even gotten to racing season. I've got another six months until we're there and that's where I already am. So i really felt like there was gonna be some great opportunity. Um, and it wasn't until my senior year where we had this group that really meshed together, and we had a super strong freshman class. I think there were there ended up being three freshmen in our varsity boat that spring, um, and we we almost won the Ivy League championship. We lost to Yale by 0.2 seconds, which was like heartbreaking. And now I'm friends with all of the women that beat me in that race. <laughs> and then we went to the NC2As and we won third. And I mean, I was disappointed by third because I wanted to win, but that brought home a trophy. It was our best finish since the team had won a national championship. And the following year after I graduated that same group, because I was the only senior in that boat. So the, with one replacement, the same group won a national championship. So I felt like I had contributed to that, even though I wasn't physically in the boat that next year. And so it was really exciting. I think we did a great job of turning it around. Um, But what it looked like on a day-to-day basis was me really having to make decisions around what else I was going to give up in order to focus on rowing. I started to put in extra morning sessions. I think this is more common now, um, especially even at at my uh, school, but most programs are running some kind of doubles now on a regular basis. And we had not been um, up until that point. So I was doing that on my own. I would go down and do three to four extra sessions a week in the morning on the ERC. Um, And, and then by the time I was a senior too, I made decisions around socializing. You know, when I had previously as a freshman gone out you know to party and to have fun with my friends two or three times every week <laughs> by the time I was a senior, I limited that to maybe once a week. Um and and that made a huge difference. And then even academically, there were points where yes, I was at a really rigorous academic school and I wanted to and was definitely focused on doing well in school. There were points where I had to make decisions around okay I can stay up and keep working on this, or I can go to bed so that I'm recovered for tomorrow. And more times than not, I made the decisions to, to like go to bed and to recover and to prioritize rowing. And that definitely paid off.
0: Now, was that hard with your natural competitive instinct to want to, you know, keep a high GPA and do well in your classes, probably particularly the ones that you liked, um, but recognizing it can't be everything.
2: Yeah, it was hard. Um, And it wasn't until later that I had a coach that said this to me, and it really stuck with me. But they told me that you can be really good at three things you can be great at two things, and you can be the best only at one. Right. So you have to make decisions there. And I was making the decision to be great at two things. I wanted to be really good academically and really good um, as a rower. And then when I joined the national team, the only thing that mattered was rowing. So everything else had to go away um and so yeah i mean it was challenging but kind of with that mindset it helped and i think it also helped and this is something i've definitely taken into my post rowing life the concept of having just seasons of your life right the same way that you may have seasons of your sport where the spring season needs to be very prioritized so i would take all my hardest classes in the fall um there would also be moments where you'd say, okay, this week school has to come first. So I have to maybe pull back a little bit on my extra work of within rowing. And then next week, when I'm through this academic period, I'm going to ramp back up again. Right. So it was a matter of kind of figuring out how you were going to balance these two things that really mattered a lot.
0: No, for sure. Um, With your capacity for work and your capacity for suffering, Have there ever come times where you've tried to to be number one in too many different things and kind of go against that coach's advice? Or maybe it was before that coach gave you that that kind of mantra or statement. Um, And if so, what were the consequences of that? And then how were you able to recalibrate again and realize, well, if I'm 100% in density, intensity, volume, and collision, things are not going to go well.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, my, my time, I think from childhood all the way up to the national team, I sort of naturally started to narrow the focus, um, right. As a lot of what I've just described to you was, do I care? Like, which one do I care more about? Right. And so socializing was one thing that I chose to not be great at. If that's, you know, something you can get a grade for. (laughs) Um, and And then as I like joined the national team, like being able to join all my family functions became something I had to say no to, um, being able to develop my career at the same time had to be something I said no to, uh, in a lot of ways where I I just really couldn't also have a part-time job, especially as you got into the Olympic year. Um, so a lot of that happened naturally. I would say where it was a lot harder was after retirement, because there are not the same metrics in everyday life to measure where you're having success like there are in athletics. And so it was easier for me to be able to say, I'm going to do a lot and the fullness of my day or the productivity that I'm going to you know, label a day um, of is going to be how I measure my success. And that was very much so not sustainable that lasted about a year before I totally imploded and realized, okay, we've got to figure out a different solution here and a different way to approach post, you know, retirement, post-sport life. um, And really kind of focus on what it is that I want to be good at, what it is that matters to me and how am I going to decide not to focus on these other things that just aren't as important.
1: Yeah. So uh, when I worked for the San Francisco giants, uh, when I, started with the, with the organization, I asked one of the hitting coaches, you know, what makes Buster Posey and Hunter Pence and all these, you know, all-stars and world series champions so good. And, and he says, they want to go out there and beat your ass. <laughs> and so what I'm picking up from you is you have a killer mindset. you you have a predator inside of you. Where did that come from? And maybe that's going back to your origin story. It could be with siblings, those kind of things.
2: Yeah. I'm the oldest of four. Um, but my parents are both just cutthroat competitive to the point where we kind of have to stop playing board games as a family. Now, when we have get togethers, cause they always erupt into some kind of a competitive argument. Um, so I think definitely some of that was just innate from my parents and just from the way that they raised us to go out and pursue things and try the very best that you could at them. Um, and there are a couple sporting moments actually, where I have memories of my dad, encouraging effort and aggression, even over results, like really wanting to see me like lay it all out there, whether that was physically or, or just from a, um, you know, a capacity point, um, mostly on the soccer field. I remember those things. There was one time where he's, he said to me, like, I want you to go out and get a yellow card. I was like, I don't want to get a yellow card. Like I don't want to do something that's not legal here. And really what he meant was he wanted me to go out and be, like a little bit rougher than trying to be so composed within like a box of a, of a player. And that kind of helped me to strip away some of the boundaries of what I thought I was supposed to look like as an athlete and realized that I actually could do quite a bit just from effort. Right. And, and then on top of that, you can develop skill that will really take you very far. Um, but yeah, I mean, my dad was a, a football player at the Naval Academy, so he certainly had some of that. My mom was an athlete herself they're lifelong athletes. They still play a ton of sports. All my siblings did. So I think, yeah, a bunch of that was just the environment we grew up in.
1: Must've been fun around the dinner table.
2: For sure. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, one piece of
1: chicken left or something. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, that was, that was like for snacks or for even like milk, people would fight over who got the last sip of milk or who took the last cookie or whatever. Yeah. So definitely very competitive household. I think we've gotten, To a better place as adults in terms of how we're going to keep that in check for the sake of our sibling relationships, but uh, I think it's always going to be there a little bit.
0: No, I love that. Um, So going back to the story so you, you graduate from Princeton, and then what came next in terms of your rowing development.
2: So I graduated in 2010. So that was two years before the London Olympics. And to me, that was a really appealing opportunity because it didn't mean I needed to commit an entire four years right away. Um, And the unique part about that whole story is that the women's national team actually also trains in Princeton. And so we shared a locker room actually for the entirety of my time at Princeton as a collegiate athlete. So I was rubbing shoulders with these women who we're going for Beijing and who were in selection and, and were you know, going there to bring home medals. And I think that really was a a special and unique experience because I got to see that these were humans. And even though they were, you know, incredible athletes and they accomplished amazing things athletically, like I could almost sort of size them up a little bit and say like, yeah, I could, I could compete with that. Um, And so it made it much realer having it in front of me every day. But still, I had to make that decision about how much I wanted to commit to this sport because pretty much all of my uh, classmates retired and went in or sorry, graduated and went into finance. Um, And so I sort of thought, like, I'm not sure exactly what I want to do. Maybe that's what I should do. So my internships that I mentioned before, they were both in finance. I got offered a full time job on Wall Street when I graduated. Um, that I was contemplating taking, and I decided to turn it down so that I could continue to try to row and to see if I could make this London team. So I, I had two years to go, I joined this training center group and basically had to relearn a totally new skill set again, because the u s still right now um, primarily focuses their collegiate talent in eights, which are, you know, the eight person boats with a coxswain making the ninth, everybody has one oar, so you're turning out to one side of the boat. That's called sweeping, um, in the U S so everybody's sweeping and everybody's used to big boats. And when I joined the national team, I had to learn to scull, which is each rower has two oars. And I had to learn to row small boats. So that's like a single, a double, a pair, uh, and a four. Those were all boats that I had very little experience in. I had been in a pair like a total of a handful of times before that. And so like really those boats all row very differently. They go completely different speeds, right? As you can imagine the 8 is by far the fastest. The pair and the single move much much slower. So you have to actually pick up the weight of the boat differently, you have to create a different impulse, you have to match with a partner differently. And so it was a it was a steep learning curve, which is great, but I started very much so at the bottom. Like I came in last at a speed order in the women's single my first year and just was kind of looking at myself like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I am way at the bottom and I have a long way to, to claw my way up. Um, yeah, and so that that was what the start of that experience looked like.
0: No, that's great. So um, fast forward us a little bit from from there to, you know, you get to that. Was it the 2011 World Championship selection? Um, yep. What What was what was the progress like? Uh, obviously, pretty dramatic in terms of from the bottom of the speed order to not only really being contention, but but um, competing in that World Championships.
2: Well, I got really, really fit um, because I had to spend a lot of that time in the single. So in some ways, that's just like weightlifting over and over and over. <laughs> so I got fit um, doing that and then eventually worked my way back into these sweeping boats, which was definitely where I had more comfort and more experience and realized that there were actually areas of that, that I could be very good at, because I, I think some of that athleticism also allowed me to feel the difference in boat movement, um, where, you know, that's, that's definitely something that that helps break apart the great rowers from the good rowers is the ability to feel exactly what the boat is doing in many different scenarios right so you're not just taking your fitness and applying it to the oar but you're reacting to the water underneath you to any kind of condition change to the way that a partner might apply power um to an adjustment to your settings with your equipment because those all require slight tweaks in how you are actually moving and applying that power I realized I could do that. Um, and so I started to get more and more confident in the pair. So that's two people each has one, or so you're sweeping and then, um, started to actually win some races against my, my teammates, um, when we were out there doing training sessions and it ended up being that, you know, the eight was selected with the top woman on the group. And I still was not part of the top, uh, eight in that group, but the next four, I was right in the thick of it. And so, uh, you know, was able to basically win some of the key selection pieces that was required and made this women's four and had no expectation of what that was going to be like. I had never raced in the four before I had never raced in. Well, I had, I had actually once, um, but I had, did not have a lot of experience racing internationally in general. Um, so, had this opportunity to go and like get to Europe and to practice with this squad and to race overseas um you know and and then to jump to the result there we broke the world record in the women's four <laughs> and we won gold so That was just this really cool confidence booster for me where I realized, like, okay, in a year's time, I can get fit enough, I can gain new skills, and I can definitely like use my competitive edge to take me to the next level. Um, and that that racing at the international level and then being able to come out with a win was such a massive high that I ran on that high for about another like four or five months. It really helped me into the Olympic year um, of training and selection. No,
0: I love that. So then take us into the Olympic gear.
2: Yep. So the Olympic gear gets super intense. Uh, The tension of the group goes up quite a bit. And I saw this happen with the women going to Tokyo this past cycle as well. Um, I'm actually now one of our U.S. rowing athlete representatives uh, who sits on the board of directors. And then I also report to the USOPC. So... Part of my job is to interact with the athletes and hear how things are going. So I got to very much so like witness this all over again, um, which mimicked my own experience where, you know, this training center is usually about 30 women and you know that only 14 of them are going to make a seat, right? So over half of you are not going to be able to capitalize on this dream that you're all training for every single day. And as much as they are your teammates and your boatmates, and they're going to be in the lineups with you when you make the boat, they're also people that are trying to take your spot from you. So it's a really weird dynamic in that you're your teammates and competitors. Um, But, you know, in the Olympic year, we spend as much time as we possibly could on the water, which means that we're living out of suitcases a little bit more. Um, We traveled from Princeton to the training center in Chula Vista, California. And we were there for four months that year. So, uh, living at the center and using the lake there, which is a great body of water and it's really isolated. So as boring as it is, it's a great training training environment in that there's no other distractions. Um, the crazy part was that I broke my rib in January of that year. Which is probably the top or second most common injury in rowers. Um, we, we see a lot of lower back issues and then rib fractures. And so I broke my rib and we're now coming up on selection really quick. And to me, I was just like, what am I going to do here? I need to heal, which is going to be a minimum, you know, four to six weeks for this stress fracture to heal. And then I need to work my fitness back up and back into the selection group quick enough to be involved in the entire process. So that was kind of scary. Um, But I think I was a little naive in the whole process, which was probably a good thing. It played to my favor. I just, focused on what I could focus on. I was positive enough in believing that I could still make some good physical gains outside of the rowing boat. And that when I was ready and ready to go again, like I would be able to catch my way back up. Um, so that's what that pretty much entire winter looked like.
0: Wow. Yeah. Jim, what do you see there in terms of that injury recovery mindset
1: there's so many good topics we're talking about teamwork um we're talking about you know kind of being a competitor uh you know it's kind of rowing is interesting because you're it's uh it's kind of an individual sport in a team atmosphere but then you know when you make the team and when you're in a boat it's uh, it's a true team and there's probably one heartbeat you know so i'm interested about learning you know lessons from uh from you know about teamwork and leadership but then also dealing with pain and discomfort and um Uh, so I think those are two topics that you might want to riff on.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that the teammate thing, um, it, it was a lot of fun because when I was healthy and I was part of that group, you get to rotate through partners quite often so that, um, most of the training would be done in small boats, uh, just because it's such a fantastic training tool. You can't hide in a small boat. It's either you're moving it or you're not. Uh, and, And it also requires a lot more skill than the eight does. You can get away with a lot of mistakes in these bigger boats, um, and a lot more roughness, but you can't in the small boats. So that gave us the opportunity to learn a lot about each other as teammates. And there was one partnership in particular that really just clicked for me from day one. We hopped in the boat together. Her name was also Sarah. So we sort of became dubbed the Sarah pair. And something about the way that we applied pressure together and the way that our personalities matched just made us a really, really strong partnership. But what was really cool about that too, is that we had to play very different roles. And part of that was from our dramatically different personalities. She's super low key, really easygoing, uh, really doesn't want to overthink things, wants to kind of know what is in front of her as a task and just go out and do it. And I'm very much so the opposite. Like I'm very analytical. I want to like think about this whole process. I want to understand why I want to break down the technique. I I want to be academic about the process as well. That helps me to get a better understanding of what it is I'm trying to achieve. And when I've been able to actually have that, I think I've, I've really thrived. Um, I'm also a little bit like louder and, um, and those two pieces of personality actually worked perfectly together. She was in our stroke seat and I was in the bow seat. And so as a stroke seat, she needed to set the rhythm and then just be really consistent and apply as much pressure as she could, but not waver from that rhythm. And for me, I needed to be able to take in the information around us. It was actually my job to look out of the boat, to tell us where we were in a race, to tell us where we were against competitors, to make decisions around when we were going to push. And so those two things combined made us just this awesome partnership and and you had to adjust every time you had a new partner, right? To figure out who they were and how are we going to work together and how are we going to you know, play on each other's strengths? So I think actually being a good communicator and figuring out how to work in different partnerships is a key component of success in small boats. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess the other part that you, you touched on there Jim around being able to push through pain, all rowers figure out how to do that because you have to, um, But the injury pain was definitely a different one, right? Because you don't want to have to do that. If you can avoid it, you're not going to most likely be able to hit your absolute most optimized potential if you're pushing through bad pain like that. But it is what I ended up having to do because I, you know, I healed and continued to jump back in with the group and went through selection and made the team. Uh, But I raced in London in pain. Uh, and definitely was not entirely, entirely healthy until I was able to fully recover after. And so it becomes something that, again, you practice every day, figuring out how to turn off that part of your brain. So you're almost not recognizing the fact that you're feeling this bad pain, this like injury type pain and finding a way to kind of like box it up and like push it away when you're doing something that is really, really important and hard. Um, And so, yeah, that wasn't all, uh, that wasn't super fun to be honest it's not something i i miss having to repeat you know that that actual like physical ache and pain that you have to figure out how to to work and train through on a regular basis mm-hmm.
1: with, with the the sarah pair which, which so are you more of an engineer and she was more of an artist or how, how would you how would you uh define yeah, i think that? that's a good
2: way yeah, yeah that's a good way of putting it yeah and Um, you know, if we were to like work in a work environment together, uh, now, you know, outside of rowing, I would imagine that's how it would be. Like she, I would be more of like a COO and, and really working in all those operation pieces. And she could have like a bigger, you know, just vision for what that was going to look like, um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it was a it was a great click. And honestly, we have an amazing friendship still. She's got two kids. I've got one. So it's like a nice excuse for us to be able to get them all together. And we live pretty close. But uh, that partnership as athletes, it just really worked.
0: Absolutely. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, I was going to say real quick, Jim, um, as you were coming back from injury, kind of that last phase where, like you said, you were trying to build fitness in the gym or as you could on the erg and probably on the water once you were cleared just emotionally knowing that you had her support, was that a big factor in you being able to basically row your way back into select into the selection frame. And then from there, obviously get selected and go to the, the Olympics.
2: It definitely was. She was absolutely one of my closest friends in the group, but when I was injured and she was healthy, she had to think about herself as an individual. Right. And mm. so I, I think, you know, we didn't really know that we were going to try and go for the pair. Um, and that's the spoiler alert, I guess, to, to listeners, um, is that that was the boat that we ended up making the team in was in the two woman pair. We didn't know that we were going to do that until about eight weeks before the team was named. Um, prior to that, she was, she was just trying to be at the top of the pool, right? So the top of wherever she was going to be slotted. And, that looked like it could have been a several different boats. Uh, she was looking at th- being selected for the eight. She was looking at being selected for the quad. And we actually had to align together at a really critical moment in selection and say, okay, we're going to pull ourselves out of the process with these other boats. And we're going to commit to the fact that we're going to be together because we think that that's our best chance. And so, yes, having that kind of support and connection was massive because if I hadn't had that, I w- wouldn't have had the ability to actually, you know, race with this partner that I made the team with. And I would have felt much more alone in the entire process. So absolutely that made like a huge, huge difference. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'd love to hear more about your self-talk. Um, you know, whether you're dealing with, you know, hard training or, you know, maybe on race day, what what were some of the things that sentences that would go through your mind?
2: Yeah. Um, so I have tons of journals that I kept throughout that time period. So it's sometimes fun to go back and look at them you know, what were we doing? What was I thinking? How was I feeling? Um, I rated like pain scales throughout that whole training too, so that I could actually see where that was flowing. And I think what I was able to do really well was focus just on that moment of time. Right. So focusing on like, what is it that I can do right now? And, when I was injured, that was about, okay, what can I do for physical therapy? What can I do for stretching? What can I do for my diet? What can I do for recovery? Like, I'm going to just look at these pieces that I know that I can control that I think will contribute to the healing of my bone and will contribute to me being set out better. But there's a lot of stuff that I can't control. Like I can't control what the rest of the group is doing out on the water. I can't control how much more progress I'm seeing some of them make. Like I was actually seeing them climb up the leaderboard. And I think that could be really anxiety provoking if I had let it. Um, and I don't really know what gave me the ability to do that, but I'm, I look back on it and I'm like, man, it was, I was really good at staying like pretty laser focused in what I had to control. Um, And I think some of that was being young too, uh, because I actually trained a second cycle and that was a lot harder to do the second cycle because I just kind of knew what all of the obstacles were and, and what the reality of the situation could be. And it became harder and harder to be able to block those things out. Um, so you know, that, that self-talk leading into the Olympics was really about just, are you doing everything you can do good? You are. And that's, then that's enough, right? That's exactly what you need to be focused on right now. Um, And then in those hard, you know, important moments of selection, and I still do this, I would lean on other moments where I had proven to myself, I'd been really strong, right? So I could look back on my collegiate career and I could say, you remember every morning that you got yourself up when you were tired after studying late at night and you forced yourself to do this anyway, you've done it before. You can do it now. Right. Or do you remember sitting at the line of that NC2A race and being so nervous and not sure what you were going to be able to do? You still went out there and had your best possible race. You can do that. Like you can get rid of nerves when you need to and still perform. So you can do that now. Right. So it was the ability to really like build all of these bricks in my brick wall. Uh, it kept getting stronger and stronger for then me to be able to look at that and say, I've proven to myself multiple times that I, I have the capability and now I just need to do it.
0: Oh, I love that. So when you get to the Olympics, how did that come into play? Then obviously you're still dealing with pain, but you've proven to yourself despite the pain that I can come back from this thing, at least say to 70, 80%, where hopefully the rib didn't feel unstable at all in your rib cage And you know you knew there was a possibility of re injury but it blocked that out to some extent so tell us a little bit about the olympic experience itself
2: yeah i mean ugh, the olympics are amazing uh london did such a good job of putting on an incredible games i feel really fortunate that that was the one i got to go to and for me, you know, we had won the trials, so we'd earned our spot on this team, but really I had no idea what our capability was going to be internationally because Sarah and I had not raced as a pair internationally yet, which honestly is just mind blowing when I think yeah. about that. I I can't believe our first race together internationally was the Olympics. Yeah. Or, but it was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and again, I think some of that, some of that inexperience actually played to my advantage because I went in feeling zero pressure. Like I just felt like there's, there's no expectation here. Nobody knows who we are. Nobody thinks we're supposed to be good. We really weren't even supposed to make this team, but we did, right? Like we, we managed our way onto this. And so anything that we do positively is going to be a cherry on top of a crazy experience. Um, and So I went into my heat, my Olympic heat. We were up against the great Britain women's pair, the greatest women's pair of all time. (laughs) And, And I just said to myself, like, Hey, let's see if we can hang with them. Right. Like what's the worst that can happen, right? The greatest pair in the world beats us. Okay. Like that's kind of expected. Right. So let's see what we can do. And I think that is the best executed race I've ever had because I was just really focused. And in the moment um, I was like soaking it all up and incredibly grateful for the opportunity to be on the starting line in a red, white, and blue uni and was actually feeling that right. And, and acknowledging it in the moment. And then also just like ready to lay it all out there. Um, so in that race, we broke the Olympic record (laughs) and, we finished with contact on that Great Women's Pair, Great Great uh, Britain Women's Pair. So that means like the boats were still overlapping, um, and I, I think the margin was like you know within a couple of seconds. That was pretty massive. It was like oh my gosh, we're fast too. Like I had no idea we were actually fast. Um, so then it was it was really about okay now now that I know we are kind of in metal contention. Let's see if we can do everything we can to make sure we don't waste that opportunity. Um, but yeah, that was that was what the initial stages were like. What the initial you know race was like. It was it was incredible and just exciting. And I felt so lucky to be able to go there and to to lay it all on the line.
0: Well, that's great. What about the next round?
2: Yeah. So the next round, we had a massive turn of weather. Um, it got super super windy and uh the women's pair was the first final to uh compete in in rowing. We were actually the first one of the one of the first um medal races actually in the entire Olympics. So before um or I guess later in the rowing uh program, they ended up reseeding the, the lanes so that the lanes that were getting hit by the wind the hardest were uh not the top seated boats. And they hadn't done that yet for my, my race. So we got a really tough line assignment when you looked at where the wind was hitting, like you can actually look down that course from old video and see, like there are dramatic puffs of wind that are going to hit us throughout the race. And you felt it, it felt like a wall of wind at certain points. Um, But still all that being said, like we had a, we had a decent race. Like we came from behind Um, at one point we were in silver medal contention, um, like actually in second place. And, It was so loud because there were, you know, 45,000 people or or something like that on the shore that we could not hear each other. And so a lot of the, um, you know, the, the way that you would communicate in a race would be for me to say small things like, okay, up, right. Like that meaning, like, we're going to step our, our rate up or like go, because this is the moment where we're going to sprint, right. Or small little things. We could not hear each other at all. Um, so that was a place where inexperience did not play to our favor, uh, having prepared for, uh, a, a time where we were, we were going to have to rely on different form of communication. And I think that that definitely hurt us. Um, we ended up falling from that second place position to fourth, but second to fourth place were it was like 0.3 separation between the three of us. So we were barely out. It was like a foot, um, where we missed that medal opportunity, so, I mean, that really, really stung. <laughs> it hurt a lot. Um, there's a picture of us crossing the finish line, just completely collapsed. And every time I see that photo, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember exactly what that feeling was like. And then you have to get pulled to go get drug tested right after. And you're like bawling. like <laughs> You just missed out on this medal. And you see all the women who did medal, like pull up to the metals dock and get out of their boat and go win their, their hardware and Yeah. So that was hard. And it took a long time to really recover from that. Um, But I look back on the experience and I still, I can immediately put myself right back in that boat and I can feel like what my body felt like. I can feel what the wind felt like on my face. I can hear the crowd. And even just for the ability to put myself back in that moment like that, whenever I want to, I feel so lucky. And so I'm always going to look back on that experience as a really good and positive one um, just because I got to have it.
0: Wow. A lot there, Jim. Um, gratitude being a big one. What, what do you say? Well,
1: I'm thinking back to what your dad said earlier or what you said, you're, you know, you shared about your dad saying like, what, it, what, it, what did he say? Go, go out there and, you know, and, and you know, like kind Get of do damage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. go out there and do damage. You know, it's not so much about the medal, you know, or, the, or the, the result. You know, it's about what you put out there. And so that's exactly what you did in that moment.
2: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And that's why I could walk away from that and really live with the result was because I think we did everything we possibly could. And when I go back and I look at the two years that led up to that moment, and really the years before that, I was doing everything that I had within the tool set that I had to set myself up for success. I was making the right decisions and So I, I felt like I could get, you know, to the starting line and feel confident about my preparation. And I look at that race and I'm like, we did not hold anything back. Right. It would have been much worse to have been surging from behind and have just barely missed that medal than to have kind of lost it in the last 10 strokes because we went so hard so early. Um, and to me, like that's, that's, you know, about putting it all on the line, being willing to take risks and knowing that when you do take risks, like it's not always going to come out exactly the way you want, but that but I can live with that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's probably, you know, the real gold medal or the real medal is, you know, and and you know, Phil and I talk about living a gold medal life. And that's what exactly what you're talking about. Any other quick thoughts on uh we've talked about confidence a little bit in terms of you leaning on past success and then you know verbal persuasion, you know, and in terms of supporting your teammates and them supporting you. Um, how about in terms of a little bit more about composure, uh, cool heads win hot games. So how did you keep your cool when the pressure was on in terms of, you know, maybe things weren't going as well as expected just in general throughout your career. And then, uh, you know, or, or as just, you know, big race, like we just talked about.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, again, I don't know if there's really like a magic bullet for that. It was kind of what I mentioned prior, which is, focusing on what I could actually control. And I know that that's kind of almost a cliche at this point, you hear athletes say that all the time, but it really, it really rings true. Right. So we'd have bad warmups before races and we had a bad warmup before my trials race. And it was like, okay, well, I can't change how the warmup just went. We just finished the warmup, but I can change, you know, I can still impact how we're going to get off the line. Like let's go do that the best that we possibly can. Um, And so really, really trying to focus in the moment as much as I could and not get too far ahead of yourself, because I think that's something that can absolutely be overwhelming. If I had graduated from college and I'd been thinking about the Olympic trials race that was two years away, there's no way I would have been able to make the progress that I did. But because I looked at each day as an opportunity to make steps forward and focused on what it was that I had to do in order to do that really well, it allowed me to make this progress without, without getting overwhelmed or, or anxious in the moment. Um, so I think that really helped along the entire way, but, but confidence is also not something you can fake or, or conjure, right? It, I do think about it like that brick wall example that I started to say, I, I think that competence creates confidence, right? So the more opportunities that you give yourself to prove competence, you're able to build this, this brick wall, And they can be really simple moments that help reinforce the fact that you are on the right path. And then, you know, there are those stronger bricks, right? Like maybe those like golden bricks where they're really big moments where you've done something extraordinary that proves to yourself like, wow, I, I actually am capable of big and hard and scary things that become part of that wall. And that makes the wall even stronger. Right. But but when I see athletes now, um, that I work with, uh, that are struggling to build that confidence, it's all about me giving them opportunities to see their competence in action, right? Because that will allow them to then build the confidence over time. And sometimes that's not even in a sports specific moment or in a, in a rowing moment. And in fact, sometimes it's more helpful to pull them out of the boat, to help them help have this competent moment in something different, and then being able to translate that back to, to their sport. So yeah, I guess that's kind of a, a wordy answer for you in terms of what works for me.
1: Thank you.
0: No, I love that. Um, so you you touched on a little bit there, kind of coaching. Um, but before we dive into that a little bit more, talk to us about the next quadrennial cycle after London.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's like a whole nother can of worms we can talk about. So <laughs> Um, I started to get really injured. Um, So like after I healed fully um, following London, I had a period of um, of health and then fell into like an 18 month cycle of injury and couldn't figure out what was going on and used all of the team doctors, pretty much exhausted all the resources that were available to me and felt like I had a decision to make. Either I was going to have to stop rowing and retire because I couldn't get healthy. Like I couldn't even sit. That was how bad it was. I had a pain that was mostly in my low back. I've had it too.
0: I've had it too, and we both went to the same person to fix it.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yep. And yeah, so if I couldn't sit in a chair, I definitely couldn't sit in a boat. Um, And apply
0: massive amounts of power times thousands of strokes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was really pretty painful. Um, and so I had no idea what was going on. Uh, one of the team doctors thought that it was a lower disc issue. They wanted to cut me open and give me surgery. I did not feel like that's what it was. It didn't feel right to me. So I, I saw about a dozen different doctors. And finally I saw this doctor at Columbia who assessed me and said, you know what? I, I think you're just really weak. Like you've got some super imbalances right now and you need to work on balancing these out because like he was doing some of these tests on me where my glute med was just completely failing. And so- Was um, that one
0: side or both sides? Was it like one was firing and then the other wasn't or to a much lesser degree or?
2: Yeah, they were both really not firing well but the side that I was in a lot of pain on was dramatic. It was just like nothing was there. Um, And so getting that diagnosis- Really helped me to make the decision. I'm not going to retire, but I can't keep going the same way at the training center the way I've been trying because it's not working. So I left the training center. And that's where we uh, had our pads cross, where I met Kelly Starrett and I met Brian McKenzie. And not even kidding, after over a year of being in pain every day, two weeks of strength training with that group, and I was completely pain free. And it was just this massive eye opening moment where I realized, oh my gosh, like there's some, there's something massive that I've been leaving on the table, which is understanding, you know, what my body is doing from a mechanical standpoint and not just what I'm trying to do as a rower. And that if I can gain strength and fill in these weaknesses, I could be even that much better. Um, so I spent that second cycle or the the back half of it, especially outside of the main training center with that competitive group of women And the negative was that I wasn't part of the the system, wasn't part of the group, didn't have that day-to-day competition. The positive was I had the ability to completely dictate the direction of my training and the personalization of my program. And through that, I became the fittest, strongest, and I think best boat mover that I ever was. I just was unbreakable at that point. I was just super fit and super resilient. And unfortunately, I actually didn't end up making the team, Um, but I think there's, you know, there's a lot of things that went into play at that. And it wasn't because I hadn't maxed out my potential. And so they were two kind of dramatically different cycles, right? One of them was following a plan and a coach's like rules basically, and what he wanted me to do and making the team. And the other was taking control of my own journey and my destiny and feeling like I had left everything out there and not making the team and when i looked at the two after i retired i actually was way prouder of the second one than i was of the first one because it was really really hard to make some of those decisions for myself in the second journey and i learned so much about myself as a person and as an athlete and just as a driver of my own destiny that it set me up to i think give back to my community better to give back to just kind of the world to to kind of transition into what it was that I wanted to do after sport. Um, so totally different experience and outcome. Um, but also like very eye-opening and a really great learning experience.
0: No, it's amazing. Um, for no people that haven't experienced that, they're not being able to sit thing is, is weird and very unsettling, right? Like Um, We just, you know, we just got back from that family uh, trip from Florida, as you both know, and the fasten the seatbelt sign was on the entire time. And it's probably because I've been in real uptick during um covid times of incidents should we say on planes and they also turned off the lights at a weird time whether you wouldn't usually and I think it's to keep everyone more docile <laughs> but I used to have to stand going back to England particularly at the back of the plane I'd make friends with them all and they'd give me extra water and it was cool and I'd just prop back there and lean and read my book right and have my headphones and occasionally they'd talk to me and I'd talk to them but it was because I could not sit and if if I did it felt like something was shifting in my pelvis and even gray cook said to me one time when we were at his lake cabin he was like dude why aren't you sitting why are you pacing around i was like i can't sit and he said well that's a problem (laughs) we Mm -hmm. should probably look into that so yeah just the mobility side and recognizing like still um for me, it's both lack of activation on that right glute and also major lack of mobility on that side of my p- pelvis. So it's a left-right asymmetry. But then some stuff, you know, dislocating shoulder and all that in and rugby and, and, and in basketball many times. And then on the o- opposite side, a bad ankle, which has now turned into two bad ankles. But unless you know, and unless you're exposed to a Gray Cook or a Kelly or a whoever it is, maybe, you know, with the glute stuff, Brett Contreras or someone like that, you were just like, well, I don't understand, like I'm training as hard as I can. And it's you, you just don't understand like left, right asymmetry or front to back. And then how to and for you, like the rowing stroke is weird, right? Because biomechanically, it's a hinge, but it's also kind of a squat and it's also a bit a massive pull. And so you're like, well, if I just do more pushing, maybe I can balance out any symmetry. But it's, it's not that simple, is it?
2: No, it's not. And then to make matters worse, right. The rowing stroke is actually asymmetrical in sweeping because you're turning to one side over and over. Right. So, I mean, my husband and I both, because he was a rower as well, we both have like one lat that just has way more mobility than the other because we've done that so many times for so long. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was a really fascinating experience and it completely changed the entire way that I think about sport and movement. Me And, and because of that whole analytical and academic side of, you know, who I was as an athlete, I dove in deep to all of that. I learned a ton. I became very self-educated on, on all of this. And I mean, it was, it was really simple when it came down to it. And to me, it was so unfortunate that that wasn't already part of the program at the U S and that's part of what I am, you know, in my athlete rep position, really encouraging us to do in this change of our system is to prioritize the athletes bodies as athletes and not just as rowers, because you can get really, really good at compensating in rowing and you can win gold medals even because you become a gold medal compensator. Right. But that doesn't mean that we, we're maximizing the potential there. Um, And so it just became a matter of me understanding what areas am I not naturally using in the boat on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So I have to build those areas up in order to create this resilience, right? Like rowers are incredibly quad dominant, like crazy quad dominant actually. So I had to... I had to spend so much time working on my hamstring and my glute strength. And then w- through that process, I realized, oh, I actually can use my glutes in the rowing stroke and I haven't been using them at all. So there's this massive muscle s- system that I've just been wasting. Um, and even the core to extremity control piece, I didn't understand that really at all prior to this injury. And, and that unlocked this whole new ability for me to, to get, Oh, if I put my pelvis in the right position, I'm actually able to brace my core properly. And then the work that my legs and arms are doing doesn't feel like the majority of the, the work in the stroke. The, the the stroke started to feel aerobic and core focused. And my legs were just kind of like a byproduct. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that just really helped me to, to understand my body better, to understand what things that I was feeling actually. Like, what did that mean in terms of translation to speed and how to capitalize on like different areas and different movement of my body?
0: That's why I think you should be a performance director at a company, because you've got the mindset piece, you've got the physiology, the mobility, the nutrition, um, the, even like the practical stuff around time management, time blocking, all of that, um, so yeah, that's my challenge to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, Phil's helping me scope out the next chapter of my career after we uh, worked love together it. for, uh, I think that's almost, it was almost four years, Phil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was in marketing. Yeah, uh, but thanks all yeah. yeah well, we can keep talking about that too. No, for sure.
0: <laughs> I have to do it live on air just to put you on the spot, you know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I would do love you- to hear more about the retirement piece. but Yeah, uh, the transition. But, yeah. yeah, the transition. But, but, but first, uh, thoughts on... Uh, uh, you know, or advice for, for female athletes. Um, you know, I know there's obviously a lot of overlap and, you know, we're talking kind of generalizations, but just curious a little bit about your experience. You know, I've worked with a lot of female athletes and some will tell me, you know, I don't want to get too bulky, you know, in terms of, you know, know, muscular, um, you know, in terms of the weight room, that was a little bit, that's a little bit older, you know, back more back in the day. Um, but also I've had a lot, I've worked with a lot of female athletes said, you know what, a lot of girls don't like me and that's okay. You know, I hang around mostly with guys, you know, and I'm, I'm just curious your thoughts on, on, you know, challenges or, or advice for female athletes.
2: Yeah. Um, so a couple of things I would say is I like really try to empower, especially these young women that I work with to understand how amazing it is to feel strong. Right. And so I do that in a couple of ways. I try to lead by example, right. I spend a good amount of my training time now in the weight room because I fell in love with it through that injury recovery process. And it, I've just realized how good I feel when I'm strong. And when I start to lose that either by accident or because I'm doing something else, you know, that I'm training for like a marathon and I lose some of that, um, that actual strength, my body just doesn't feel as, as solid in a good way. Right. So I try to teach, these athletes, just how exciting that is to feel that way. And I mean, we've got women in the weight room now just doing some amazing things where they realize like how cool it is to do that. And, and I I hope that they can stick with them, you know, after they're done with their sports too. Um, but I I really encourage that. Um, and then I think it's important to know as coaches and as athletes uh, that are women that, they shouldn't be treated the same way that male athletes are right. Because their physiology is different. And also like the psychology of what's going to land is going to be different. Right. And, and that's on an individual basis as well, from, from woman to woman, there's going to be different things that work for one than another. Um, And I think sometimes that just innate ability to be able to like read, um, you know, another female athlete because I was one myself is really helpful Um, and to be able to, to get when it is, something that they need emotionally, that's actually going to help to unlock their potential physically. Right. I think that's, that's really huge. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I guess I would just say, um, there was a turning point for me where I had to accept, like, I'm going to put on muscle if I'm going to continue to take on this sport and improve. And that was something I actively said yes to in the process. Um, and then, yeah, I, like it was, it was evident in the physical, uh, the physical output too.
1: How about outside of the sport? Was it challenging for you, uh, you know, in, in relation to other women, you know, in terms of, uh, maybe coming across as too aggressive or, you know, too strong willed. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of silly to, to, to say it that way, but, but that's what I do hear from a lot of female athletes that like other women don't get me, you know, cause I'm so competitive.
2: Yeah. Um, I didn't really feel that so much, in college or even really on the national team um, from like a personality standpoint, the Mm -hmm. physical piece was hard. Uh, I think, especially in college, our whole team was really tall and like then getting muscular as well. And that stood out, especially Mm -hmm. from the broader, you know, female population on campus, like you, it was obvious. (laughs) And so that was sometimes a little bit tough of feeling like, Oh, like, am I not evoking enough feminine characteristics Mm -hmm. physically? Um, and it just always came back to like this is helping me do the thing that I, I want to be focused at and I really care about. And therefore it's a byproduct of this bigger goal that I'm gonna go after. Um and and then I would say, like the you know, personality aggression piece, I've actually noticed that more post-sport, right? Where I'm not necessarily surrounded by athletes in every moment of my day. Um, having to be conscious of how I'm presenting myself in different professional um, environments, and then also I think allowing myself to to have that competitiveness that maybe is sometimes interpreted as aggression as a female, and saying like, no, I'm not going to change that in this moment because a man would not change that in this love moment,
1: it. right? That's, that's what I was hoping you were going to say, and and I love the messages about you know just loving your body and and how good it feels to feel strong, but then also how good. It feels to feel strong mentally in life and not to shrink yourself, you know, to, to fit some sort of mold. And one Australian athlete that I worked with years ago, she she used the analogy of the, the tall poppy gets cut down. And she said, I'm not going to cut myself down or let anyone cut me down. I'm a tall poppy and I'm going to love being a tall poppy. So I love that you're giving that message too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something, I think it's challenging because like society tells us over and over and over not to be that way. Um, and so I, you have to very actively encourage yourself to do the opposite and to stay strong in it. And, and I think like the, the, the most common experience that I have on a regular basis is, you know, sometimes having these moments of like an imposter syndrome, right. Of feeling like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. Like how, how am I supposed to go after this thing? Um, or, you know, try to tackle this big challenge. And then I remind myself that that is a female experience (laughs) and most men will not have this same feeling in this, in this environment. And so therefore I'm not going to let myself have it. Right. So, um, yeah, I think that there is something really special about leaning into your strength as a woman and being unapologetic for it.
1: I love love that. that.
0: Yeah. um, Among the women that you coach now and mentor, um, what do you feel like the biggest mental health or mindset challenges um, or, or, or maybe a couple of common ones that you see and how are you helping them to kind of work through that?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's heavy, especially right now where all of our athletes are back on campus for the first time in 18 months. And this COVID environment is so hard, right? I, I, I feel for them every day because it takes away from the traditional collegiate experience, uh, that, that you could have outside of this and that I had. Um, and I would just say in general, anxiety is high. And so it's something you have to recognize and, and address and not ignore or hope it's going to go away on its own. Right. And so that's, it's something we talk about regularly and openly, um, pretty much on a weekly basis. All right. Like, This situation is going to make us feel anxious, right? And that's okay. And this would make anyone feel anxious in this moment. And if that anxiety becomes too overwhelming, here's what we can do to manage it, right? And if that becomes more than we can handle as coaches, then we have resources within the athletic department that we can lean on harder, you know, for, and I, I think it's really important to not, not think that leaning on those kinds of resources is a failure of you as a leader of saying like, Hey, I don't know how to fully handle this situation and I need somebody else to come in and step in. No, I mean, we do that in every other area of our lives, right? We're willing to turn to doctors and physical therapists and surgeons because we don't have those skills or we haven't trained, you know, professionally in it. Um, and as much as I've studied that myself and almost like take to taking a little bit of, a, um, you know, that as a passion project, I was a psych major, um, in, in college. And then had my own experiences with sports psychologists and therapists. Um, I still think it's really important to be able to know when it's time to pass something like that off. Um, But I would say more than anything, just acknowledging it and talking about it and taking away any stigma of discussing things like anxiety has been really helpful uh, because then the women on the team are able to actually come to us and they're able to emotionally identify what it is they're feeling. Right. And, and to understand, like, it's not just that I'm stressed, it's actually like, I'm feeling physical symptoms of anxiety. And so what can I do to help reduce those? Um, I, yeah, that's been something that's been really important for us to focus on so that they can, you know, perform in, in, the ways that they need to both academically and physically, but then it does absolutely end up translating to those moments where things are on the line and you have to, you have to perform under pressure.
0: Yeah, I love that. I guess Jim, the way you've said that to me in the past is—is is being in need is not the same as being in trouble, right?
1: Absolutely, and and also too, just understanding, like Sarah was mentioning, that you know you're a sane person in an insane situation, and so you know we could all use a little support and understanding, and that if you probably weren't feeling anxious or depressed or frustrated at times, you know, with COVID and everything else going on, then I, I, as a mental health professional, I'd be more concerned. So I think, again, you're having a normal reaction in an abnormal kind of environment. Uh, And then I love that you talked about, you know, talking about it, getting it out of your head. Um, You know, sometimes we're too close to to the picture. And so just being able to get it out of our, you know, our head, so we kind of look at it and uh, can be really helpful. And then knowing that there's uh, plenty of support, you know, in terms of mental health support, and then realizing too, that you know, if you really want to see how great you can be, then you want to get every edge you can get. And, and whether working with a sports psychologist or a mental health professional, um, can give you that extra edge.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and, I mean, you just, you just kind of tapped into this too, Phil, but, um, I've heard it said as there's a difference between struggling and suffering, right? Like it's okay to struggle for periods of time. And even like extended periods of time that can build, all kinds of resilience, um, to really have to fight through struggle, but suffering is different, right? Suffering is an acute focused form of like pain that you don't need to experience. And I think, um, being able to give our athletes and even myself the awareness of, okay, am I struggling or am I suffering? And if I'm suffering for any kind of an extended period of time, it's time to go get somebody to, to help me through that period. Um, because that's not really doing anybody good. And it's only putting me in a worse situation.
0: No, I love that. Um, Jim, just to be respectful of your time and of Sarah's, do you maybe have one final question? And I'll save the other 56,000 that I've got for a part two, Sarah. So buckle up um, and just don't answer your phone when I call anymore. Uh, But anyway, (laughs) silliness aside, Jim, any final question for Sarah before we let her get on with her day?
1: Well, Sarah, thanks so much for all the wisdom and and all the gems you've provided. Uh, Any last, you know, we we touched on a little bit in terms of the process of, you know, retirement process. And, you know, I'm pretty big on, you know, when you retire from your sport, uh, uh, find your new sport, uh, whether that's in the business world or whatever you're doing, and not to get too nostalgic, you know, and and look backwards because you want to be moving towards something, not just coming from something. So, how have you been able to manage that transition? And, and, uh, it sounds like, you, you know, you're, you've done a, a variety of cool things. And then you said, though, I, I like how you said that, you know, you still kept dreaming about, uh, rowing for several years, but, um, you know, just what's worked for you, what, what's been helpful. And then any advice you might have for another athlete going through kind of a similar retirement process or, you know, either about to start one or, you know, maybe early on in the stage of retirement.
2: Yeah. I mean, I could absolutely talk about this for an entire length of a podcast again. So I'll, I'll give you the highlights, which are for me, it was all about re-identifying who I was as a person. I had really started to identify myself as an athlete and athlete only. That was, that was all I thought of myself of who I was and really where my worth came from. And so I had a ton of work to do to re-identify myself and to completely broaden the definition with which I looked at success um and that took a while and honestly i think i'm i'm still kind of like working on it um but the majority of the hard work and the really substantial work came in the first couple of years after retiring and so i i guess i would just start by saying it's going to be a transition it's a different level of transition for everyone some people kind of bounce right through that quickly and then others i've seen they're decades out and they still haven't healed from it because they haven't really looked at it and figured out what's going on there And so I was lucky, my husband very much so encouraged me to lean on a professional at at about like the six month mark after I had retired, I thought I was going to be okay because I had a job lined up. I had an apartment. We had a new place we were moving to in the city. I had this, you know, my, we were married at that point. So I felt like I had everything I needed from stability, but that really wasn't what I needed to work on. It was this self-identification piece And so once I found a therapist who was this perfect fit for me, we now have continued to work together on other things that I'm, you know, focused and working on. But that transition was a huge, huge project of just figuring out what are my values even, you know, outside of an athlete, like, what do, what do I want to show up? as in the world every day. And, and then how can I find projects that help me lean into those values, um, to really feel like I'm, I'm living as the best version of myself. Um, and so I encourage all athletes that I, that I have on the national team that are retired to, to go, you know, seek help and support in that process. We're actually trying to put in more formalized, um, like retirement transition, uh, protocols for all of that but i think it can be very much so the same for collegiate transition and even high school transition if it's something that you identify yourself with you have to figure out how you think about yourself again and and i've seen that as well with with other um, careers like people that identify themselves as a doctor or a lawyer if that or you know whatever it is if that starts to get taken away from you for some reason you can be left realizing i don't have a whole lot here and and that's a scary thing. And so I think it's healthy for everybody to, to you know, take some time to look at themselves and figure out what that whole package really means to them.
1: Great, thanks.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much. We touched on so many great topics and I appreciate you being, as always, candid and forthright on all of them. And uh, yeah, it's just a great learning experience for us to be able to hear this.
2: Thank you both ha- for having me on. I really appreciate it. I know this show is going to be so killer. So uh, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.